You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thank you very much. Um, this, our next reader comes from a, um, an ancient and now uh, somewhat uh, attenuated uh, field of literature called poetry. <laughs> <laughs> um, he I'm was... Good start already, aren't we? <laughs> like, like most modern poets, he was born in Berkeley and raised in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> and... <laughs> I don't usually go into people's um, um, educational or uh, academic um, portfolios, but it is of note when somebody attended the University of Iowa and the Iowa Word, uh, Writers Workshop, which uh, David Lundy did. He's also a he's a two-time Rissling Award winner, which is science fiction's own um, homage, or you might say, crumb thrown to poetry. And he's uh, and he won the the Penn Award in 2007. His I have his one of his newest books here is called Instead. Um, I'm trying to think what else. You know, it's a number of books. He's has a very distinguished poetry history, uh, publishing history, which includes uh, all the science fiction venues, but pl- plus things like uh, Track Quarterly, Kansas Review, Iowa Review, and um, without further ado, let's uh, welcome. David Lundy. Thank you. Uh, I assume you're a science fiction audience, right? Well, in I fantasy. This, this, I don't, maybe not. You know, the, the most, this book that Terry mentioned instead is the most recently published book, but the poems in it are actually, it's mainstream poetry, not science fiction. And it's, Mostly stuff I wrote back in the 70s and 80s. Um, so it's, I'm, I was young and ironic in those days. <laughs> and I'm old and ironic. Uh, <laughs> I'll read you the title poem from this. this is, it's called Instead. Instead of writing this poem this weekend, I could have poisoned cabbage worms in the garden assassinated aphids with a handy multi-purpose agent invented by the Germans in World War II. I could have attended the democratic picnic, barbecued my mustache, and played frisbee with the old farts. I could have explained once again to my neighbor that it's not the Kaiwanis itself. I'm sure they're a fine bunch of leisure suits. I'm just not a joiner. I could have strolled downtown for the New York Times in my bathrobe and slippers, not giving a good goddamn what the churchgoers thought, and spent all Sunday reading it. But instead, here I am again, wasting my time on you. (laughs) (laughs) And then here's what, I'll read you another little bit. This is a completely different kind of tone. This is first will and testament. I give my right eye to hunters, for it sees the death in everything it touches. 
I give my left eye to diamond cutters, for it squints at the flawed world through glass. I give the whirlpools of my ears to the desert, which understands their thirst. I give my heart to the volcano for its fitful burning. I give the plates of fat on my belly to make a flag for the revolution. I give my mouth, which is already trained, to tell the lies of the revolution. I give my mouth, which is already, excuse me, I'm sorry. I give my right hand to actors, for it knows the art of small gestures. I give the left one to politicians, for it always helps wash off the right. I give my toes to horses, for they are fingers without ambition. I give my feet to the highway, for they also have gone two directions at once. I take my vices to the orphanage, they will be adopted by others. <laughs> I give my work habits to the oyster, whose pain is a pretty rationalization. I give the secrets of my voice, the scree of my voice to water, that it may be smoothed into song. I take my tongue with me, for it wishes its taste to remain secret. I give my words to the poem, which runs off to make its fortune. <laughs> That's my favorite. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll read you a few from Science, collection of science fiction fantasy poems called Night Fishing in Great Sky River. Um, Great Sky River is what the Chinese call the Milky Way. This one's called Vampire Villanelle. And it's narrated by a vampire, but it's also called this because it sucks the blood of other villanelles. <laughs> So it's dedicated to some of those people who were victimized, Donald Justice, Dylan Thomas, Theodore Rethke, and W.H. Auden. If I could tell you, I would let you know not to rage against the dying of the light. I sleep to wake and take my waking slow, clinging to the soil in which I cannot grow. Wise men at their end know dark is right, if I could tell you, I would let you know. We are the dancers in the afterglow, sired in caskets, born to live at night. We sleep to wake and take our waking slow. You whose infant passion has yet to grow, whose blood teeth have not yet learned to bite, <coughs> if I could tell you, I would let you know the knack is this, to fasten and not let go to taste the iron-rich blood by candlelight, then sleep to wake and take your waking slow. Images in mirrors will never show how ageless is the dark's own face of fright. If I could tell you, I would let you know. I sleep to wake and take my waking slow. <laughs> this is a... Uh, poem called Postcoitum Tristesse, <laughs> dedicated to my alien lovers. Um, it's about sex with aliens. Some of, <laughs> some of you may have be able to relate to that. Uh, I do not know, still I do not know, 
If you understand what it is we do together, if it is together. As I touch your dense, smooth skin with its slight scent of cumin and citrus, I wonder how you smell to you and what olfactory alchemy transforms my rank animal odor. Or if it is a matter of sense at all, the tactility of integuments, perhaps, the sensation of being so enwrapped in these monkey limbs. Does it speak to some atavistic instinct, some visceral relic of origin? For it is hard to imagine what a being so complete, so ultimately unreachable in thought or flesh could find appealing in these musks and fluids, these tortured writhings. Or does my adoration amuse some decadence so deep it beggars merely human imagination? <laughs> this is on gravity and perpetual motion. Even if the earth were cored like an apple, pole to pole, and I stepped over the edge to be drawn immediately down, accelerating at 32 feet per second squared till I passed the molten core and rose, decelerating at an equivalent rate as I intersected the uneasy strata, absorbing the geology of creation until I surfaced at the farther pole, pausing for one balanced moment before I fell again impelled by gravity's unassuming pull, I would rise and fall perpetually. And yet, though every atom of my body knew its intimate grasp, I would understand of the force that moved me like love no more than its name. astronaut's wife a profile <coughs> this is uh, written in two columns and the left hand side is pretends to be a sort of um, press release <coughs> from NASA you know or a, or a Sunday supplement article about the astronauts and then the right hand side is written in verse poetry and tells the truth about things so. the astronaut's wife profile. Chuck's pretty wife, Virginia, hails from the Paul Bunyan country of Minnesota. Being used to hard work on her father's dairy farm, it was no trick at all for her to work two jobs and help put Chuck through school at the U of Minnesota, where he graduated cum laude in physics. Chuck's pretty wife, Virginia, left that bleak, miserable farm and her father's sullen incompetence before the life in her body could explode or freeze or both like a Minnesota tree in winter. She put Chuck and herself through school, waitressing at Perkins and bartending at the Blue Lamp. Once in her slinkiest dress, she crossed town to the ambassador and turned a $100 trick for the missing rent. She graduated summa cum laude in psychology and didn't feel the least bit guilty. Chuck and Jenny and their two lovely children, Robert and Amy, 
live in a charming older home near Cape Kennedy, where they lead a typical suburban domestic life, complete with neighborhood barbecues beside the swimming pool, whenever Chuck is not on a mission. Chuck and Ginny and the kids live in a ticky-tacky split level in a 20-year-old housing development with leisure-suited neighbors whose overtures they can't always refuse, good PR being worth the square of its weight in budget appropriations. <laughs> Ginny feels as if she's swimming every time she steps outdoors into the thick Florida air. Bobby's asthma is chronic. In Florida, 20 years old is old, and this compression of time affects Ginny as well, just as Einstein predicted. <laughs> One day, Chuck will return to find her withered, rocking on the slumped porch with an unfamiliar grandchild clenched in her bony lap. When her spacefaring spouse is not at home, Jenny has learned to manage the home and children in the solid Swedish manner of her pioneering forebears. <laughs> her tidy home provides a welcome oasis of peace and love for husband Chuck when he returns from a stressful mission on the high frontier. After three afternoon gimlets, Ginny orbits the supermarket. Past constellations of cat food, novas of nibbles, quasars of quenchers, she rockets the aisles, deftly applying her steering jet to avoid catastrophic impact with meteoric children, gas giant housewives, Bobby... <laughs> Bobby whines for a Milky Way. <laughs> At home, Ginny will have to sponge up the cake crumbs and spilled soda from Amy's birthday party, which Chuck missed this year again. Both partners in this exceptional marriage eagerly await Chuck's next mission, the <laughs> longest and most difficult to date. This is the big one. Chuck will be helping to build America's first manned space station, which is intended to prove once and for all that man can live and work in space on a permanent basis. <coughs> the new nighty for sure, Jenny thinks, adding porterhouse steaks to the basket of frozen pizza, peanut butter, cat food, cocoa puffs, and boxed mac and cheese, the kid's favorite. On the way home, she picks up a fancy Bordeaux that matches her candles. Early fed, early to bed, jingles in her mind as she rakes the sand in her oasis. Man was not meant to live and work in Florida on a permanent basis. <laughs> <laughs> Liftoff for Chuck and the other brave astronauts is scheduled for 7.32 Monday morning. Our pride and our love will fly with them. Liftoff is Monday morning, but Chuck must report a day early for the endless countdown. Jenny thought she was prepared, but there must have been a leak in her inboard locks tank, for her guts are frozen harder than Minnesota as she holds him, seeing his eyes flicker outward, drawn to those moth lights, the universe falling around him like a new cloak, and her arms so empty, empty, even holding him after a night of lovemaking that said all she could say. She smiles and cups his unfocused face in her hands and says, go baby, shake it and bake it.
a couple from Blues for Port City. This is a little collection of poems, all that take place in the same setting in the future at a, at a starport. And uh, the only people who can drive the starships are cyborgs. They have to be part machine and they have to be genetically altered and other things in order to do this. But the starport is filled, it's called Port City, and it's filled with people who wish, like anything, they could go to the stars, and they're bitter and unhappy because they can't, and so on. So I mean, and it, the poems try to tell the story of this place and time. Um, I'll just read a couple and give you some idea. This one just sort of describes the problem. It's called Port City Lament. Another villanelle. No man can go where the deep ships go. We curse our human flesh that bars the way and stare at stars that we can never know. Stars as bitter bright as methane snow. Our cyborg pilots bring us tapes to play. No man can go where the deep ships go. In Port City taverns, the holos glow with vibrant worlds that make old Earth seem gray. We stare at stars that we can never know, at worlds on which our vat-spawned children grow, while robot mothers tend them at their play. No man can go where the deep ships go, but only load, repair, refuel, and tow, and wipe his hands and speed them on their way. We stare at stars that we can never know. We curse the bread, we curse the dough, we curse the God that made us from such hapless clay. No man can go where the deep ships go. We stare at stars that we can never know. And this is called Star Rigger. Call me Star Rigger as they will, Saying it don't make it so. Saying it just bitters the breath, abrades the ear, when I've got no more to do with stars than a starfish on a reef. I rig all right. I probe. I hovering in my work pod with sensor beams and eyes for damage, for crystallization and pitting, for structural fatigue and perforations, for every damned kind of weakness, and find each one of them in myself, if not in the ship. I fill my head with the work, the job I do for love and money, love of my son, money to save him from grounder's fate, back broken on the reef of Port City, asteroid encrusted with wrecks, debris of scrapped ships and lives. I fill and polish, replace and refurbish, re-rig the ship for the next journey out, and still the stars that drew me here grow more distant every day. My parents were too poor, maybe too full of love and fear to help me go. But my son, my son will go out, his brain conning the great hull of his body through the currents of space. Perhaps then, with his emotions damped, his body altered, Perhaps he will no longer care for the father that got him there, but he will still be my son, my flesh gone on to lay claim to the new frontier, 
to swim naturally as a shark in the all-fathering darkness. For those of you who have really got a, a background in early science fiction, you'll, you might pick up some things out of this. It's called Einstein's Cold Equation Blues. <laughs> it used to be so easy blasting into space. My home-built backyard rocket would take me any place. The stars my destination, nonstop off I'd go until I made first contact out in Scorpio. At the thunder of my landing, who goes there, you would say, all you zombies wondering how you got that way. I'd skylark off to Vega, cruising at Tau Zero, and outsmart bug-eyed monsters, a more-than-human hero. Out around far Rigel, on a lazy day I'd roam, till I finally lensed your message through stars like drifting foam. The lights in the sky are stars, but always Earth abides. Earth man, come home. It's time to choose up sides. <laughs> no runaround or reason would keep me from my quest as I put the stuff of mankind to every alien test. But the planiforming soul of the man who wanted stars will never get much farther than the not barsoom of Mars. After Einstein's cold equations were relativity impaired, this is truly childhood's end, and none of us is spared. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. This is called The Watcher. I am the one assigned to watch you the one who knows your favorite vegetable and sexual position. Today, because it is Wednesday and raining, you will wear the charcoal cardigan beneath your London fog, thinking it will make you seem slimmer to the red-headed waitress at Louis. Yes, I am the reason your underarms suddenly sweat, the nothing there that crawls along your spine. I do not know why it is that I watch you, but if you should somehow notice me, you will find a reason. You will find, oh, many reasons why your errors are important enough for me to waste my time. <laughs> Let's see here. This was written on uh, 1892, when, the, when Superman died, they killed him off in the comic books. They brought him back later. <laughs> what can you do? This is called Superman Inoxidab. Inoxidab was French for stainless. They put it on stainless steel. You know. <laughs> Superman died today, victim of a world grown too alien for his own alien virtues, goodness and right, honesty and trust. The days when he vanquished Nazis in his immaculate flag-hued skin-tight suit have corroded away like Metropolis itself into a grimy cyberpunk future, 
a time when observable goodness is viewed with cynical suspicion. We know that anyone with those chiseled good looks and that kind of power would be wetting that spring steel willy, turning our earth girls on his inexhaustible spike like game birds on a spit. I mean, hey pal, wouldn't you? No, Superman died just in time. The Boy Scouts of today are fondling, fondling the pieces in their pockets and saving up someone else's grocery money to buy a Mac-10 or an Uzi. Jimmy is listening to gangster rap on his boombox while Lois is hooking on the side and watching reruns of Thelma and Louise. He just couldn't have adapted. The Man of Steel today is Robocop, or the Terminator, who can rip the still-beating heart from your body. Still, I can't help hoping that the Man of Steel will remain rustless in his kryptonite tomb, that his virtue will remain a stainless legend, that in our time of greatest need, an earthquake will set him free to rise again renewed like King Arthur from the grave and vanquish black-clad evil for us all. This is called the landing of saucers. The landing of saucers. One. The beings of cluster center tire of their utopian hive. They pack up their etiolated bodies, their delicate nerves, to journey here, searching for something more wondrous by far than the prosaic landing of saucers. After the confusion of intent gives way to an accepted embrace and your head tilts back so that galaxies regard themselves in your infinite eyes, your kiss is like the landing of saucers. When the sweat beaded up on your forehead and your body contorted with strain to free the alien within it, the first glimpse of soft fur crowning my son's head was the landing of saucers. Standing on the solid shoulder of a mountain that knows me, the hands of my son and daughter clasped in my own, I show them the first blows of the new sun against shadows clutched in the hemlocks and the tendrils of mist smoking up from the lake, and their eyes overflow with the landing of saucers. On the round earth's imagined corner between hubbub and hurly-burly, while the sun circles warily, I perch like a preacher addressing my flock in their ships. There's no escape in this life from the landing of saucers. Um, do one more very recent poem, if I can locate it. called First Beer on Mars. <laughs> <laughs> Sky Mountain Porter, it was called, and the laser-etched label shows 
Mons Olympus with its top circled in stars against the black Martian sky, and at its foot a tiny alien ship from Earth on a black lava plain. The brewery was in a lava tube, sealed off and pressurized, chosen for the thick vein of water ice it transected, in which had been found ancient Martian yeasts wanting only sugar to work again. <laughs> Those tales about jock straps and yeast infections simply aren't true. Hops and barley were grown in red Mars dust composted with human waste and weeds of earth that stowed away in hydroponic flats and were kept by half-crazed astronauts to make the ships feel more like home. The fermentation vats were scavenged titanium propellant tanks from the Dubai landing in 2030. <laughs> the CO2 was pumped outside to thicken the Martian atmosphere. You may have noticed it smells of beer. <laughs> the brewery at first, of course, was secret, being illicit, but you just can't keep a secret that tasty. And when the Mars base admin tried to shut it down, all personnel declared they'd shut down too and meant it. Sky Mountain Brewery, as you know, is now hailed as Mars' first native industry and the thing that made life on Mars palatable. Just look at its founding fathers' and mothers' portraits, sculpted holding steins on the solar system's highest peak. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Patricia and, and David, I think we have a theme here, which is beer is either magic or it's uh, <laughs> patriotism. At any rate, I want to get another beer. Let's take like five minutes, and then and then we want to uh, call these people to task. <laughs> so we are going to have a panel discussion. So five only. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>